0: John 11, verses 21 through 27, and it says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, fellowship. Good morning, All right, good to be back. Open your Bibles to John 11. We're going to be in the text that Lauren just read, and she just gave us a few of the verses. We're going to cover a big part of the story, and I can't be more excited to be back and be in this particular text. And let me, before I go any further, because I have been away for a little bit, my name is Rob, and it's good to see you, and it's good to be with you. Some of you laugh, and some of you are like, I didn't know who that was. Good to be here with you, good to be back. Um, Lloyd Shadrach and I are the two primary teachers. You will hear some others from time to time and we were really grateful that Rubel Shelley could be with us for, I guess Lloyd was here last week, but the previous four weeks and now Lloyd and I are back. We both had an opportunity to have a bit of a break and spend time with family and do some travel. Not together. He went to Japan, I went to South Carolina. But it was wonderful, and uh, it's good to be back, and good to be with you. Now, I guess this is now, I've taught this message a few times, and each time I've had a different introduction, because I can't really land on what I really want to say, but I'm going to give it another shot, and here's what I really want to say. When we come to church week in, week out, we find ourselves taking for granted how profound it is that God himself, embodied in a human being, walked among us, ate the food we eat, shed the tears we shed, felt the pain we feel, laughed similarly to how we laugh. He made for us, no, he makes for us, God so accessible, so Powerful, so beautiful, so loving. And when you read John's gospel, which is one of the most beloved books in all of the Bible, for good reason, you sort of see this idea coming slowly over and over again throughout the gospel that John, this disciple that was so convinced of Jesus' love that he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, is overwhelmed with what the incarnation of God means for humanity. So John starts the gospel by saying, in the beginning, before everything was, was the word of God. And and recall, it was the word of God that created all that was. And, And he puts Jesus there. The word was God. And then a little later, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So right there, the beginning of John's gospel, there's just wonder and amazement. Can you believe this? Do you believe this? That God himself came to earth in a person that could be seen and touched and spoken to. Now, you and I may say this. Well, Rob, one of the reasons why I... Tend to lose the wonder of that is because i can 't see jesus i wasn 't there i wasn 't one of the ones he talked to i didn 't see what he looked like. I just have to imagine him just as I have to imagine any other concept of God. The way to read the Gospels is to understand that Jesus, because he was embodied in a, in a human body, could only be with a handful of people at a time. He could only heal the the people that he interacted with there were Thousands, perhaps millions of people who were sick in the day of Jesus then didn't get healed, even though they lived at the right time, you see. So you have to understand that the interactions of Jesus with the people he interacted with teach us how God interacts with all of us. They teach us, had you been there, had you been in the family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this is how Jesus would have spoken to you. Had you been one of the followers, this is how Jesus would have interacted with you, do you see? This this is how we are to read the gospel. It is an historic account of the God-man. And at the same time, it is teaching us how God interacts with all of us. John, the beginning says, no one's ever seen God, but God himself through this man, Jesus Christ, has made him known to us. So open your ears this morning, open your eyes this morning as we dive into perhaps one of the most beautiful chapters in all of scripture, the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And my encouragement and challenge for you is to place your life over the lives of the people in this story. Imagine that this is God interacting with you because it's intimate and it's personal and it's so much more than just about Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Jesus is love come to earth. And if you want to know what that looks like, if you want to know what love is, who love is, we look to Jesus. So we're gonna see three things about love this morning. Three things about Jesus, who is love. We're gonna see, number one, love confounds us. In other words, love will surprise you in not always a good sense. Love will perplex you. It will confuse you. Love confounds us. Love does that. The second thing love does that Jesus will show us in this text is he confronts us. Love will stand in your way, motivated out of love, loving confrontation. Jesus does that in this text. And then finally, we'll see love comes near us. Love confounds us. Love confronts us. Love comes near us, and we'll see Jesus do all of these things as we learn about love himself. Now, let's look at the first part of this. Now, spoiler alert, you know, the story ends in resurrection, but there's so much more to it than that. We won't even get to the resurrection today. We're going to save that for next week when Lloyd is back with you. I'm going to cover the first 37 verses of the chapter this morning, and we'll break it in those three parts. Love confounds, love confronts, love comes near. Let's look at the first part, love confounds us, and I'll read 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. There's so much in this text that puzzles us, that confounds us, that confuses us. I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, it sounds like Jesus is talking in riddles. He wants to go back to a place where he was almost killed the last time. The disciples are confused about that. But let's just start right back at the beginning of the message. The one he loved was ill. That's the message that he gets. Isn't that an interesting message? They don't say Lazarus is ill. They just knew he would know who he's talking about. The one you love, that's an indication of how close Jesus was to this person. Jesus, God in the flesh, how could someone you're so close to, someone that you have so much affection for, someone that you love, be ill like this? The implication that the sisters are bringing to Jesus is, surely this is not what you want and so, all we have to do is let you know that the one you love is ill, and we're sure that you will take care of the rest. Jesus' answer in verse 4 is interesting, isn't it? Jesus, when he heard it, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, you and I know the story. What do you mean, Jesus? It doesn't lead to death. That's exactly where it's leading, is it not? Lazarus became gravely ill and it was exactly going to end in death. What is Jesus talking about here? Again, is this not somewhat puzzling? Well, if you put it in perspective of the whole story, what we know Jesus meant is it's not going to terminate in death. Death is not going to be the final act. Death is not going to be the end of the story. He doesn't say this illness will not pass through death. Now, right away, we, we have this challenge to our theological assumptions. Number one, if if Jesus loves this man so much, how can he be sick? Zoom out, this is basically the problem of evil, is it not? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering and pain and even death in this world? And the reason that this puzzle is so perplexing is not because of what we think so much as what God's word says. God's word says God is love. God's word also says God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that nothing happens without uh, his sovereign divine word. How do those two things come together in a world of brokenness and pain and hurt and suffering and even death? And so the, the Bible says these two important things about God. God is love and God is powerful. And then you look around your life, I look around my life, we look around the world and we're like, how can those things both be true? Either God is not actually love, not fully anyway, or he's not actually in control, not fully anyway, So here we are barely into the story and we're already in the deep end of the pool. We can all identify with the problem of evil. We we try hard to believe that God is loving and in control, but when suffering and pain come into our lives, where is he? Lord, the one you love is ill. Surely that can't be your plan. Now, Lazarus getting sick is not the most perplexing part of this first section of our text. That distinction goes to verses five and six. Listen to this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Surely that's a mistranslation, right? Shouldn't it say, now he loved Martha and his sister Lazarus, so when he heard he was ill, he rushed to their side to be with them and heal the brother or, or maybe you could say, well, maybe it should say this. Although Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus, he stayed two days longer. That's not what it says either. It says he loved them, therefore, so he stayed two days longer. There's no other way to translate this that's accurate. It is cause and effect. Because of his love, he delayed. Because of his love, he stayed where he was. And by the way, it wasn't he had a lot of other things to do and that's why he stayed. It was his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus that compelled Jesus to stay. And so your brain's going, how how could this be? God's love is confounding, is it not? God's love confounds. God's love's a puzzle sometimes. Knowing the serious of the situation, knowing the anxiety the sisters were having, knowing the mortal pain Lazarus was enduring in his illness. Because he loved them, because he cared so deeply for them, he stayed where he was. This is the confounding nature of the love of God. This is the perplexing, confusing nature. Do you recognize it? Can you transpose your own life over this? God's love for you will sometimes perplex you. It will confuse you. It will confound you. God's love at times will do the opposite of what you think it should. God, if you love me, how could this have happened? We'll hear this sentiment spoken by the sisters in our next text. God's love is confusing. God's love will make you angry sometimes. But one thing we learn from this family's interaction with God himself in the flesh is that pain and grief are not antithetical to God's love for you. In other words, they're not the opposite of God's love for you. In fact, they may be a surprising indication of God's love for you. Pain and suffering are not the opposite of God's love for you. Hard to believe. Now Jesus loved, fill in your name. So when he heard that, fill in your difficult circumstances, he delayed two days longer in the place where he was. God's love confounds us. It confuses us. It perplexes us. Here's the question each of us has to wrestle with. Will I judge God's love by my circumstances or will I judge my circumstances by God's love? Will I anchor myself in what I know to be true, according to his word, that God is love, and there is no darkness in him at all? And will I interpret my circumstances according to that anchor point? Or will I do it the other way around? Will I question God's love? Will I judge God's character? Because he's not acting the way that seems loving to me. We can't answer that too quickly. It's too difficult a question. Because God's love at times confounds us. That's not the only thing God's love does. It also sometimes confronts us. Take a listen to the next section of the text. Read along with me on the screen, starting in verse 17. Don't read along out loud, just silently. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Here's something interesting, and Brian did a good job of guiding our prayer time earlier around this phrase. Lord, if you had been here. Now, you'll notice, you'll see this phrase twice. Once on the lips of Martha and once on the lips of Mary. What is very interesting is that Jesus responds very differently to the two women. Two sisters having just experienced the exact same tragedy, coming to Jesus separately, independently, saying the exact same words, Jesus responds to them very, very differently. Let's look at how he responds to Martha. He confronts her with truth. How does he do that? His very first words, your brother will rise again. He confronts her with truth. Now, she dismisses him a little bit. At least that's how I read it. I know he'll rise again on the last day. You know, She's sort of saying, I, I, I do believe that, but that's cold comfort to me at this moment right now. But then Jesus locks eyes with her, so to speak, and he confronts her with the most explosive statement she's ever heard in her life, I am the resurrection and the life. This is where the love of Jesus confronts Martha. Now, as we've been going through John's gospel, we've seen four previous I am statements, and this is our fifth. And I want to remind you of these. The seven I am statements in the book of John. We're at number five of seven. Each one starts with these words that in the Hebrew, of course, is so much more than than it means in English. It's Yahweh. It's I am who I am. It's the proper name of God. It's God's name for himself. Jesus is identifying himself as God in the flesh. And then in each one of these statements, he's saying, and here's one more thing that means for you that I am God. It means that I'm your bread. It means I'm your life. It means I'm the door. It means I'm the good shepherd. And he comes here and notice it's to Martha, a grieving woman who just lost this brother that she loves so much. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in other words, what he's saying is not I will be resurrection in life, but I am right now, past tense, present tense, future tense, all that I am in me is life, is resurrection. In me, Jesus is saying, Everything dead is reborn. Through me, Jesus is saying, everything sad is undone. In me, the world that is broken is remade. And he's confronting her with this. He's saying, you don't have to wait until the last day for consolation and fullness because I am stands in front of you right now. And then having said these incredibly profound words, he asks her a question. Do you believe this? And that's God's confrontation of Martha. That's Jesus' confrontation of Martha. It's a statement and then a question. In the same way, the love of God confronts you and confronts me even this morning. Christ is God's self-revelation of himself to you, to me. And the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus? Really believe him? Not just believe, yeah, I believe that he there was, you know, he, he's a historical figure who lived and he had a, a lot of followers. Do you believe he's the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that in him there is nothing dead? There is nothing in the presence of Jesus that is broken and wrong and messed up in the world? Or do you believe that other things are life for you, that other relationships are life for you, that other dreams are life for you? Jesus is saying, I'm the life. I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, In me is fullness, In me is wholeness. And he says, do you believe this? God confronts you sometimes with truth. Now, why must he confront us? Why must God stand in our way? Because we're all born traveling headlong toward death. And if we're not confronted with life himself, we're lost. And so how loving it is of God to confront us with himself. How loving of it is. Isn't he loving to get in our way sometimes? Sometimes if he just only said everything we want him to say, if he only just said, ah, you're good the way you are, if he never confronted us with truth, if he never called out our idolatry, if he never just said, you need to change the way you're seeing this, Martha, because it's even more profound and better than you hoped, would he be loving if he never got in our way? Confrontation motivated by love is transformational. So God confronts us. And how does he do it? He confronts us in all kinds of ways in our lives, doesn't he? But mostly through the truth of his word and the person of Jesus. And remember that Jesus, his word made flesh. So this is how God is loving you. Even right now as I'm speaking these words and you're hearing the spirit speak the texts to you this morning, even right now, through this text, God stands in your path And he says, behold, my love for you in the person of Jesus. Do you believe this? If you're not willing to let God confront you, you will never change. You will never find life. So God's love confronts us at times in our life. Isn't he good? So God's love confounds us perplexes, confuses, surprises. God's love confronts, stands in our path, gets in our way. There's one more thing that we see love do in this text. Love comes near us. He comes near us. Let's read 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Do you see they're putting two and two together? They're seeing his tears and they're saying, oh, he really did love him. Why did he not keep him from dying? Couldn't he have done it? What is the answer? Yes, of course he could have done it. Absolutely he could have kept Lazarus from dying. Even from a distance, Jesus could have done that. And it would have been marvelous. But he didn't. He chose not to. What's the implication? Could it be that dying and being resurrected is better than never dying at all? At least in this instance, we know that to be true. Jesus gave us the answer at the beginning of the text. He says, It's not going to terminate in death. You know, death's not the final act, but rather the glory of God will be the final act. And so Jesus, as he's about to raise Lazarus in just a matter of minutes, there's going to be great glory given to God. Yet Lazarus will die again, will he not? And Lazarus will have another resurrection. And so God's glory will be Once again, proclaimed and rejoiced and shouted through the resurrection of Lazarus. Transpose your own life on this story. Some of you are old enough to understand you will not live forever. We all know this in our heads, but we don't really believe it until we get to certain ages. Or we encounter certain obstacles to our health. And then it becomes so real to us and so profound to us. What do we do with that fear? Have you considered that dying and then being resurrected is better than never dying at all? Think about it. Death and resurrection was God's loving plan for Lazarus. Death and resurrection was the Father's loving plan for Jesus. And except for the tiny percentage of Christians who will be alive when Jesus comes again, death and resurrection is God's plan for all of us. It's his loving plan for all of us that we die and be resurrected. So you and I need not fear death. Jesus has made it into a bridge, not a dead end. And we will pass through death. We will follow not just Lazarus. We will follow Jesus through death and into life that is true life. With the time that I have left, I want to talk about the emotions of Jesus at the tomb. And I'm only going to cover one of them. There's actually two profound emotions of Jesus at the tomb. Lloyd will cover the second one next week because it shows up in his text as well. But I want to talk about the tears of Jesus. I want to talk about the the grieving and the sadness of Jesus. Now, before I get there, though, remember this sentence is the same sentence that Martha had said earlier. And remember that Jesus responded to her by confronting her with truth. Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? That's not where he goes with Mary. How does he interact with Mary? How does he respond to Mary? He comes near her with his tears. I love verse 34. Jesus asks a question. Where have you laid him? In other words, Jesus was asking them to take him into the source of their grief. He wanted to be up close and personal with their loss. He's saying, in essence, show me where it hurts. I want to be with you in the very heart of your grief. So they said to him, all right, Lord, come and see. They invited him in. They open up their hearts saying, say, come along with us, right to the foot of the tomb. Be with us as we weep. And don't miss, it's in that moment where the dam breaks in Jesus's heart. And we get the shortest, but perhaps most profound verse in the scripture, Jesus wept. And in the Greek, it does not indicate that he shed a silent tear or that he cried a quiet sob. This is a bursting forth. The, the analogy would be, would be if you, you shake up a, a, a fizzy bottle of soda and you take the lid off and it overflows. This is the heart of Christ overflowing. Overflowing. Jesus wept, one translator translates it this way, Jesus burst into tears. And I want you to notice two things about this. Number one, don't miss the timing. He didn't cry at the moment he heard Lazarus was sick. He didn't cry at the moment he knew Lazarus had died. He cried at the moment. That the ones he loved invited him to come and see. They had invited him to come and see their loved one whose life was stolen away. Lazarus had been alive, but now he was dead. They invited God Himself to come and see the source of their broken hearts. And God himself's response to that invitation was to burst into tears, overflowing with empathy and love. Isn't it interesting that Jesus lost it, so to speak, emotionally, even though he knew what was about to happen? This is the second thing I want you to see about the tears of Jesus. He knows that in a matter of minutes, the funeral's gonna become a parade that the morning is gonna become rejoicing. (laughs) He knows that this crowd, including himself, is about to experience the most amazing, joy-filled, unbelievable, I've never imagined anything happening in my life like this moment experience. Jesus is the only one that knows this, and yet he wept. And these aren't dramatic tears of an actor. This is the heart of God bursting open. What does this teach us about God? Tim Keller had a wonderful insight on this. I hate saying had rather than has. Tim Keller passed away just less than two months ago. A loss for the church, a great gain for him. But Tim Keller had a wonderful insight on this question. What does this teach us about God, that Jesus wept, knowing what was about to happen? He wrote this, when Jesus Christ chose to leave the glory of heaven and come to earth as a man, God himself was choosing to lash his heart to our hearts. He purposefully bound his heart up with the circumstances of his people, and he is more bound up and in deeper sympathy with us than any parent or spouse or any person has ever been with anyone else. Not all of us are parents in the room, but those who are, you know what it's like for your heart to be lashed to the heart of another. Those who aren't parents, you know also what it's like for your heart to be lashed to the heart of another. What Jesus shows us in this moment by the tomb is that the heart of God is so closely knit together with the human heart that he feels our pain. He has to feel our pain because he's one of us. Jesus is fully human and fully God. This is the wonder of the incarnation. And so don't Rush past the shortest verse of the Bible. These are the tears of God shed by a human being and shared with human beings. Transpose your own life experience onto this. God is deeply responsive to your pain. He grieves with you. He says to you, show me where it hurts the most. Take me to that place with you. And when you open up your heart and take him there, he bursts into tears alongside you. Do you believe this is true? If you struggle to believe this, meditate on the shortest verse of the Bible. by the way, why did Jesus respond so differently to the two sisters who said the same thing and he took them in different directions? He gave them each what they needed. He demonstrated God's love to both of them in exactly the manner they needed to experience it. He confronted Martha with truth. He consoled Mary with tears. And he'll do the same for you. Let's put this all together. In the person of Jesus, God's love came to earth. And he showed us how God interacts with us. He confounds us sometimes. He confronts us sometimes. But he's always coming near to us. He's always moving toward us. He's always opening up his heart to us. He confounds our expectations at times. He confronts us with truth sometimes. And he comes near to us. Hasn't Jesus interacted with you that way throughout your life? different seasons, think of the times he delayed. Think of the times that that you've said, if you'd just been here, think of those times. Think of the times that he's gotten in your way. Think of the times that he stood in your path and said, no further, because I'm going to bring you back to what's true. Think of the times he ministered to you greatly and empathically with, with, with his empathy, with his tears even. there's no other God like this one. Of course, there's no other God at all, but the human mind is not capable of of conceiving, of inventing a God that is this wonderful, that is this powerful, and this humble, that is this high and mighty and resurrection in life, and this this low and entering into the, the tears of human beings, experiencing momentary loss, Do you see the highness of Jesus? Do you see the lowness of Jesus? Do you see the greatness and glory of Jesus? Do you see the humility and the meekness and the empathy of Jesus Christ? Do you know this Jesus? He's more wonderful than you think. God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus and he is exactly what we need. And so I want to invite you to take out your communion elements I hope that you received them on the way in. If you didn't, I'll give you a couple of minutes that you can go in the back and get them. And I just want to be clear, this table is not for everyone. It's not for everyone this morning. Rob, what do I mean by that? I mean, this table is open to anyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, who believes Jesus is more than just a man, who believes Jesus is God himself, who came and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and died the death that you deserved and raised up so you could also be raised up. Anyone who believes, but I also want to make it very clear, you don't have to have a big faith to be at this table. <laughs> Jesus says all it takes is just a little tiny faith. So maybe this morning you're struggling to believe, but, but, but inside of you, you know there's that mustard seed sized faith this table is for you this morning. This bread and this cup is for you. Now, there's a tension in the story where we left off. Isn't that right? Like, you know, how can we tell the story of Lazarus without getting to the good part? Let's be mindful of what we call good. There is such beauty in the tears of God. And yet we know there is more good coming. Now, pause on that sentence. Is that not where you and I live right now today? And yet, we know there is more coming. The story is not done. Do we not live in this tension between, yes, Jesus is good. He's good to come and be with us and cry tears with us. But he's not yet finished. He hasn't yet raised us from our graves, so to speak. He hasn't raised our dead loved ones where we can Be with them again, not yet, not yet. They are with him, yet we are not. And so in a sense, this tension that we're in in the story represents exactly this moment that we're all in right now. We've heard Jesus give the promise, I am the resurrection and the life, and yet we wait for him to return to make that statement full and true in our own experience. So for now, we wait in faith. These elements remind us that the most profound work is already done, that God himself not only came to earth, but he died in our place, that he went into the tomb and he didn't stay there. And because of that truth that we're reminded of in this piece of bread and in this cup, we have hope. And so with joy in our hearts, let us remember that this little morsel points us to the body of Jesus Christ broken for us and he will not leave the work undone. He will finish what he started and hope we eat the bread. And in the same way, the cup, Jesus said, this, this represents my blood that is shed for you. It's the, the new relationship, the new covenant, the new testament, the new profoundly true relationship that you have with God through Christ, and that is you are in his love. Your sins are forgiven if you put your trust in him. Your hope is secure. Your death will not be the last chapter of your story, nor will the other deaths of your life be the last. In Christ, all will be made well. And so in hope, we drink the cup. Let's stand together to our feet. I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll sing. Our Father, we know that because Jesus came, we have hope and we have life. And yet, it is hard to believe. And this morning, you've reminded us through the words preserved, through the words re-spoken this morning. Jesus, you've said to us, I am the resurrection and the life. And you've called us to believe, and I pray that we would believe. Grant us faith that we may have hope in eternal life. And we pray these things and we sing these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together.